As you're grabbing your seats, feel free to grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Your ushers are happy to give those out. We love giving out God's Word. Just raise your hand and a Bible will appear in it. And when you get it, just crack it open in half to Psalm 131. We're going to continue in our series, the Summer in the Psalms series that we're doing. But we're going to jump ahead a little bit, or a lot, actually, to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Well, I don't know about you, but there's just a lot going on. I just feel like there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in my head. There's a lot of noise going on up there. There's not a lot going on up there, but there's a lot of noise. It's summertime, and in the summertime, I just feel like it's this time I want to get a bunch of things done with my family. I want to do a bunch of things with my wife and kids, and there's stuff to do around the house and in the garden and in the garage, and there's things I want to do that I've been hoping to get to, and then there's things I need to do and must do and have to do, and it's all kind of rattling around my head, and then I'm thinking about other things, those relational dynamics, like that conversation I had with a family member last week, or that comment my neighbor made last night, and what was that Snapchat about anyway? And all that's kind of rattling around in my head as well, and then on top of that is what I'm saying in my own head to myself, like the things that you say to yourself, like, why did you say that? Why did you open your mouth? Or why don't you speak up and, and be more courageous and you are way smarter than that person that's super obvious or you don't know anything or that person is so much more beautiful than you or you are the best looking person in the room or all of these things just kind of go and in our head and it's like Times square in our brain and it's like a, a hundred different playlists playing all at the same time and we can't focus and you can't think and you can't concentrate, and you feel stressed, and you feel overwhelmed because of all this noise, and you're just kind of trying to find the dial to turn it down, or the power button to turn it off at least. And on the outside, things kind of look fine, but on the inside is noise, noise, noise. And thankfully, the author of Psalm 131 is familiar with noise. David King David, he, he knew what noise was about. He knew what it was like to have a lot of noise going on in his soul and in his heart and head. He was running around for navigate and deal with hostile enemies and neighbors and people that he had done nothing good, nothing bad to, that they only wanted to do bad to him and trying to navigate dysfunctional family and marriage stuff and how do you deal with the guilt of murder and all of these different things and death threats on his life and treason from his own kids? And that's a lot of noise. It's a lot of noise that was going on in David's heart. And on top of that, David, just like us, dealt with the extra noise of unmet desires and longings, a desire for justice and mercy, for fairness. A desire for safety and security or for love and acceptance. And when those are not met, it adds to the noise. This, this longing, this crying out of the soul adds to the noise and the discontent and the commotion in our hearts. And when there's all that noise, it's just hard to hear God, isn't it? I mean, it's just hard to hear his voice. It's hard to... To, to quiet down and to open the word and just listen and hear God's voice anymore. And David knew that. 
And this song is written, not by accident, Psalm 131, you'll see here, it's a song of ascents. It's found in a group of psalms that were sung by Jewish worshipers as they went up to or ascended up to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs to prepare their heart to focus on God and to worship God, to quiet their soul, to refocus their heart on the Lord, that they might hear him again, that they might worship him again. It's almost like these songs are the dials that we've been looking for, the dials that turn the noise down and turn up God's voice. And so why don't we read this psalm together? Psalm 131, the song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. It's amazing how David, he writes just a really short psalm, but we immediately see something from the beginning. Something to avoid, and that is this. We want to avoid the anxiety of pride. The anxiety of pride. David prays, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David Powelson notes that it's kind of like we get to eavesdrop here on David and his prayer to the Lord. And the first thing that David tells us, the first thing that we kind of pick up is that he's, what he's not doing. And what he's not doing is that he's not remaining silent. He's praying. He's not trying to figure it all out in his head. He's not trying to juggle it all on his own. He is praying. He's talking to God about this. And the second thing that we see that he's not doing, David says that his heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high. These are uh, Jewish idioms. These are ways of expressing pride and arrogance. If you have a, a high heart, a heart that is raised up, if you have eyes that are, that are exalted or high, it means that you are pridefully opposing God and others and pridefully looking down at God and others. And David says, I, I, I don't have that. I don't have that. Satan does. Satan is described exactly like this in Ezekiel 20, 28 verse 17. Satan is described as having a high and exalted heart. A heart that is raised up against God because Satan wants to be God and sit on God's throne and rule everything. And this is exactly what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden. That they could be their own gods. That they could have their hearts raised up and exalted so that they could be served and worshipped. And this is what Satan tries to dupe us with every day. Every day. 
the sin in our flesh and in the world and the devil himself seek to deceive us with this very same lie of a raised heart, of eyes that are lifted up and raised too high that we would set ourselves up as God and look down on everything else, that we might be worshipped and served. But the thing about pride is that it shows itself in a lot of different ways. It can be loud and boastful. It can be quiet and selfish, but it's always self-seeking. It's always me first and you next if you are ever next. It's always me. Always me. To the point where I am worshipped and served at your expense and to the dishonoring and the rejection of God, as long as I get what I want. And so pride is inherently cruel. It's hateful. It's the opposite of love. It's anti-love. It is cruel toward others, and it's dishonoring and unloving to God. And it's totally contrary to the way that we were made, the way we were designed as human beings. That's not what we were supposed to do. Romans 1 describes this. It says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How? Well, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, that's us, rather than the creator, that's him, who is blessed forever. Amen. We were made to honor and thank God, to give him all the praise because of his immeasurable worth. But pride flips all of that on its head. It reverses it all. And the truth is exchanged and swapped for a lie that we are actually better at being God than God. And we set ourselves up and exalt ourselves in pride and then make everything worship and serve us, contrary to the way we were made. Notice that the lie that leads to all pride is that I'm better at being God than God. As soon as I believe that I'm better at being God than God, I immediately give myself over to pride and all of its expressions in increasing degree. I believe this lie, and the moment I do, I shift my faith away from God and begin to trust myself. That's what pride is. I, I just trust myself above everything else. My own wisdom, my own strength, my own abilities, my own smarts. Now, of course, when we do this, when we shift our faith away from God and to ourselves, we quickly realize we are not God. I mean, we're not even close. I'm, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough ability. I can't be in more places. I, can, I can't be in more than one place at one time. I, I just, I fall short and I realize it. I feel it. I can't make this work. And so, I believe some other lies and start gathering around me things that will help me and continue this illusion to be a God. And so I start gathering these other little idols around me to help me out. Uh, it could be people, it could be things, stuff, anything I look to to get something out of to keep me propped up in pride. So if I'm 
and craving and wanting comfort and relief from all the noise that's going on in my life. I don't want to turn to God, and I trust myself, but I realize, wow, that's not going to do it. I'm, I'm falling short. I need some help. And so I go to some stuff. I go to some, some idols, some fake gods. I go to maybe food or entertainment and try to help and make them give me the comfort and relief I crave, but it doesn't help. It eventually fails, or I, I can't find it, and, and so I need to go buy it or overspend money I didn't even have or steal it or pirate it, and then I get it, but it's not the kind that I wanted or I don't have enough or I have too much, and in the end, I just am left with more misery and sorrow and the very thing that I don't want more of, that's noise in my life and confusion. And so... I think it's helpful to ask, what are the things in our lives that we're going to to help us be God in our life? It could be anything. It could be yelling and swearing and screaming. Does that, is that what you're kind of using to, to, to prop up your pride and to get the respect that you're craving? Or maybe it's gaming and, and winning that video game. Is that what you're kind of using as an idol in your life to get that significance and purpose that you long for? Or is it crude humor and joking? Is that what you're using in, in, your, self, in your selfishness to get what you want at the expense of others just so that you can feel popular and feel res- that 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 feeling of being accepted and approved in a crowd. What is it that, that you gather around yourself to help you be selfish? I think it's helpful to know those things, to identify them, to rightly label them so that we can say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be like David who says, no, I, I haven't lifted up my eyes. I haven't lifted up my heart. Because in Psalm 16, it clearly warns us that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It will grow. It's a guarantee. That's a promise. Misery will increase the more I go after idols in my pride. Pride only produces the very thing we don't want more of, and that is anxiety and sorrow and guilt and shame and noise in our soul. Not only in ours, but also in everyone around us. And it's contrary to our very design, pretending to be God. But this isn't the only pride that that David is trying to warn us of. He's saying here that Pride can show itself in these kind of overt ways that we do in our life of gathering things around us. But also in another way, there's another type of pride. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David says, I don't have a high heart. I don't have high eyes. I'm not giving myself over to pride in those ways, but I'm also not concerning myself with stuff way too big for me, way too great for me to wrap my head around. What's David saying here? 
is he saying that we shouldn't try to be smart or try to learn things? Is he saying just, just be happy as a fatalistic lemming? Is that what David is saying? No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, that he trusts God for help to know and learn all that he can. And when he can't know anything more, to keep trusting God with what remains unknown and not fight God for him to reveal more. Let me say that again. What David is saying here is that he trusts God for help to learn and know all that he can. And when he can know no more, to trust God and keep trusting God with what remains unknown and not fight with God to reveal more to him. What do I mean by that? Well, there's lots of things we don't know and there's lots of questions we want answers to and things that we wonder about and other things that we deeply, deeply yearn for the answers to. Could be anything. Anything like what would the world be like if Alexander the Great didn't die so young or if Germany won World War II or what would it have been like if I wasn't born in October of 1978 in London, Canada, and I was rather born in August of 1947 in India during independence and the Great Partition? Or what would it have been like if I was on this side of the partition versus the other side? What would have happened? Or questions like, why did my sister, who never wanted to get married, find a spouse, but me, I've dreamed about being married my whole life, and I'm still single? Why? Why did my boss, who's an atheist, chemotherapy seemed to work for him, but my mom, who loved Jesus, well, it didn't work? Why is it that my friend... Her twins, one died at birth, but one lived. Why is it that that one lived and that one didn't? Or why didn't they both live? Or why is it that I can't even have children? Why? These are the things that we don't have answers to. These are the things that we long for more information about from God. God, why have you left us in the dark? These are real questions, and they really kind of boil down to not knowing why. Why does God do what he does? Why does he allow this or withhold that? Why? Why does he allow good things and permit bad things in my life or in the lives of those I love? Some of you may even be wondering, well, if God really loved me, wouldn't he tell me everything so I wouldn't be left guessing? I, I wouldn't be confused? I mean, isn't it more loving for God to tell his children what's going on so we're not left in the dark? And it's true. It is very loving to communicate clearly. That's very healthy. But not all information is equally helpful. Uh, we haven't describe to our children in great medical detail why they can't visit their grandpa in ICU because it would be confusing to them or scarring if we went through every meticulous medical detail of why they can't see him right now. 
what they have to do is to trust us, that we have given them all the information that they can handle, and that's best for them right now. This is what Jesus talks about in John 16 when he tells his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. There were some things that just couldn't be understood before Christ came. And there was other things that couldn't be understood until Christ rose from the dead. And there's still other things that won't be explained until Jesus returns. There's things that are kept hidden, kept secret. Because God knows that we, we can't handle it right now. We're not able to bear up with that information That's why Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that are hidden, some things that are secret, but there are lots that is revealed, and those are the things that belong to us, that we might walk by faith and obedience. David knew this reality of hidden things in the Lord when he exclaims in Psalm 139, You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. David didn't understand why God drew the lines in his life the way he did. Why did he have to run for so many years? Why is it so painful? Why is this, this walk, this journey so hard? I don't understand. It's too high for me. I can't attain it. But what happens if we try to? What happens if we, if we try to attain it? If we try to get our hands on it, to try to pry open the purposes of God and demand that God reveal to us What's going on? The things that he's kept secret. Well, for his children, the word says that he reminds us by his spirit to stop and to trust him. But if we keep quenching the spirit and refusing to follow him, we will experience more and more overwhelming sense of this burden and anxiety and sorrow and pain and anxiety in our life because we have shifted our faith away from God in that moment and are beginning to trust ourselves that I'm seeing things more clearly than God I deserve to know more and I begin to shift and trust myself in pride and I begin to even trust my own my own standard and perspective of justice, that I've been a good Christian. I've gone to church my whole life. I deserve to know more. And we begin to demand that God give us more information. Or we begin to think that God in some way has done me wrong. And I begin to accuse him that he has been unjust and unfair towards me. And I can harbor this this bitterness that God actually owes me, that he's on the hook. And my perspective of what's right and wrong begins to get skewed. 
because I'm trusting in myself. Or maybe, or maybe as I begin to trust myself and turn away from God, I start trusting in my own sense of wisdom. My own sense of wisdom to be able to dive into my own soul and and search for some hidden sin and try to discern some error in my heart that has caused God to bring the suffering into my life. There's got to be something there. And I go on this endless hunt, this sin hunt, to try to find where is it, where is it, where is it? And it leads deeper and deeper and deeper into a despairing introspection. Because I'm trusting in my own wisdom. Or maybe I begin to pridefully start to trust in my own strength and my own resources and take matters into my own hands and just get what I want. I mean, I don't need a, a wedding to ha- need a partner and have a partner. I, I don't need a husband to have a kid. I don't need a, a job to get money. I don't need God to be happy. And I just go and get what I want. I take matters into my own hands. And pride begins to grow. It begins to push me into all of these miserable directions that increase the guilt and the shame and the noise in my soul. And in those moments, God is calling us back. This is exactly what David is warning us about, the pride, this this kind of shade of pride. Not only the overt stuff, but this subtle stuff wanting, demanding that God explain himself and reveal more to us about why he's done what he's done. Now we need to clarify here that asking God questions isn't a sin. There's lots of questions in the Bible, the whys and the hows and how long, Lord, and where are you, Lord? It's, the Bible's full of that, especially the Psalms are full of God's people calling out to God, asking God these questions. In fact, as we'll see later, is that God not only invites us, but commands us to come to him with his questions. So asking questions to God is not a sin. Not trusting God is. When we do not trust God with what he has revealed and begin to say and do stuff out of unbelief and distrust toward God, we've now moved into pride and sin. It comes down to trusting the Lord. And it's at these times that God continually calls us back to repent and to believe and to trust in him, to cry out, to pour out and pray out our pain to him, to trust his word so that we can say with Job in Job 42, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God has given us his word and his spirit. And he says, that's enough. Follow me with what you have. And what what do we have? What has he given us? What has he revealed? His word. His word. And his word says in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. I used to think that this verse meant my good was my ease, convenience. I always got what I wanted, when I wanted it. Nothing was off schedule. Everything was according to plan. 
That's what was good for me. But then I kept reading. That's always a good plan. Just keep reading if you don't understand a verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, what's the good? Well, for those who are called, called according to his purpose. What's this purpose that is good? It is to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the greatest good the Father can do for all of us is to transform us more and more like Jesus. That is the good plan. The, the good plan and purpose that God has for each one of our lives is not to make it pain-free, but to make us like Jesus through pain and joy and all sorts of things, everything, all things in my life, he's using to make me like Jesus. And not only that, he also says that these trials that he brings into my life to make me like Jesus are necessary. They're not random. First Peter 1 says that though now for a little while, if necessary... If necessary, you have been grieved. Oh, we are grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is way more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The goal that God has in each of our lives is to make us like Jesus by refining our faith through suffering and specific, tailor-made, catered trials, hardships, and sufferings that are necessary. They're necessary. If you're anything like me, I'm kind of thinking, come on, can't I read a book? I mean, certainly there's a YouTube channel out there that I could just learn the lesson I need to learn, that if there's something I need to grow in, I, I can read an article or talk to somebody, I can learn from their experience. Why do I have to go through this hardship? Jesus says it was necessary. There was actually no other way you could have learned this lesson. There was no other way you could have been transformed and changed more and more like Christ if this specific tailor-made trial was in your life. This is so key for us to get our heads around. If, if it would have helped us grow in Christ, if it would have refined our faith more so that we could have maximally grown in Christ, if we just knew a little bit more information, God would give it to us. He would give it to us before we even asked. But if my faith is going to be refined and my growth in Christ would be greater if he withheld this piece of information and this piece and this piece, then his own love for me and his wisdom for me in my life compels him to keep it hidden until he comes for me and explains all things. And only God knows the amount of information that will maximize my faith in its refinement and my growth in Christ. Only God knows that. 
And this is where we have to finally rest in faith at God's feet and just say, I, I don't get it. I don't know everything, but I believe you do. And we, and we can get to that point and say with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who can give him advice? All will be explained by him in the end. But until then, he calls us to walk by faith and to do that together. And that's where God wants us, in a place of humility, in a place of trust, of surrender, of believing that he's good and that his plan for me is good. Even though the details aren't making sense right now, he's good. I trust him. I'm going to walk by faith with what he has told me, what he has revealed to me. I'm going to hold on to that. And when we do, we begin to experience something else. We begin to experience the peace of humility. The peace of humility. David says in the next verse, in verse 2, But I have done something. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Uh, David is kept away from Pride, and instead he has humbled and contented his heart in God by calming and quieting his soul like a, like a weaned child with its mother. I don't know if you've ever heard a baby just screaming and wailing because it wants milk. If you've forgotten what that sounds like and you just want to refresh your memory, I encourage you after the service to swing by the nursery and harvest kids and you may hear that distinct sound. Tim Keller reminds us, he says, a nursing child held by its mother is highly aware of the milk she can offer and will squirm and cry if denied. A child who has been weaned, however, and no longer nurses is content just to be with its mother, enjoying her closeness and love without wanting anything else. In other words, to be weaned is really to be contented and freed. Freed from the illusion that you actually need something more than someone. That you actually, like a, like a baby realizing as it grows that it, actually needs a mom more than milk. And like us, as children of God, that we actually need God more than his gifts. And when we get to that point of contentedness, there is freedom. There is freedom there to actually enjoy what is most enjoyable. God's calling us to wean ourselves off of not just the things of this world that are bad, but even good things, gifts from his own hand, so that we might enjoy something that is best. The greatest thing to be enjoyed is God himself, to be in his presence. And he's, he's trying to help us grow and be weaned from these things that we might delight in him just for who he is and not for what he can give.
do you desire God like this? Do we desire God like this? Are there ever times in your life where you just want to run and get away just to be with the Lord, just to bring the Bible with you and open it up and pray through what you're reading and just talk with him because you love him? You just want to be with him. Are there ever times like that in your life? Or do you find that you just go to God in crisis when you have lots of stuff on your mind and things that you want and a shopping list that you're submitting to him? Do you find that that is more what your prayer life looks like? No, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to bring our request to God. Again, the, the Bible says that's one of the things that we are supposed to do in prayer is to ask God and to lay all of our requests and supplications before him. But that's not only what we are to do. That comes after we get a clear idea of who he is. As Daniel Henderson says, once we have sought the face of God and are contented in his presence, then we can seek the hand of God in the way that he can provide for our daily bread. Are we seeking the face of God? Is that our deepest longing in our prayer requests? Do we, do we see God as a vending machine that can just drop things down that we kick and scream for? Or do we see him as a heavenly father who has loved us and adopted us as one of his own children? And it delights him to give us the kingdom and to welcome us into his home and around his table. That he sings over us with joy because you are in the family and he loves the way that he has saved you. Is that the picture of who you're coming into the presence of when you pray, a loving, heavenly Father or a cold vending machine. We desire the maker more than milk. We want to know God for God and draw close to him just for who he is and not just for what he can give. I was recently talking with Ray Kaprowski, a pastor who went out from us a couple of years ago to plant the church in Ottawa. And I was on the phone with him recently, and he reminded me how calming and quieting our heart isn't passive. It's not something that just kind of happens. It takes active intentionality. It takes training. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Philippians 4.11. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned that. It, this just, it, just, it didn't happen automatically. It was something that Paul worked and labored over and trained his soul in to quiet itself to calm itself and find its satisfaction and contentment in God. It doesn't matter about the noise around me. I've got God. I've got him. And if I've got him, he's enough. My soul is at rest. I am in his arms. All is good. Contentment doesn't happen automatically. It's fostered over time. And the Bible seems to think that we can actually do this. I'm always, I'm always surprised at the commands in Scripture. It always seems to command the impossible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
okay. Like that's, like that's easy. All the time, perfectly. Quiet and calm your soul in every situation that's anxious. That's anxious. How do I quiet and calm my soul? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us one of the ways that we can learn and, and equip ourselves and train our own souls to be calm and quieted and contented in God is through fasting and prayer. We want to learn how to fast and pray. Fast and pray. What is fasting? Fasting is just simply going without something like food or sleep or some pleasure or convenience so that I can spend more time loving and knowing and praying to God and being in his presence. And the reason why this is so helpful, this is actually a gift that Jesus has given his church that I find we rarely use. He's given it to us because what happens when we fast is we show that God's better than whatever we're giving up. I'd rather have God than this. I'd rather just have God and be in his presence than that, as good as that is. It could be even one of the gifts he's given you. I'd rather have God. And when we do that, we are weaning ourselves off of not just the things of this world, but the good gifts of God so that we might mature our new taste buds that we have through regeneration, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's best, that he's the most tastiest, he's the greatest God. We're weaning ourselves off of good things so that we can taste and see that God is best. That is necessary. This isn't just beneficial. I'm just not trying to give you a tip. This is essential. I am asking you to pray and ask the Lord for help to fast and pray. Not just in a unique season this fall, but for the rest of your life. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's a day a week. Maybe it's a meal every day that you're forfeiting. You're giving up because you want to spend more time with Jesus. And ask God for wisdom and creativity of how to make that work in your specific situation. Maybe you're at home. What, what does that look like? Maybe you're working from home. Or maybe you work on a construction site or in an office. What does that look like to just go for a walk or after work or early in the morning or late at night? What does it look like to get with God and to give up something just to be with him? God has given us this beautiful gift of fasting and praying that we might train our souls in getting calm and quiet and satisfied in him. That's not the only thing he's given us. He's also given us something else to calm and quiet our souls, and that is to cast and pray. Cast and pray. What does that mean? Well, Peter does a great job of explaining this in 1 Peter 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. We are commanded to humble ourselves, which sounds impossible, right? But he tells us how. He tells us that we are humbled. We humble ourselves by prayerfully casting, throwing, 
tossing all of our anxieties and worries onto God. Why? Because we actually believe he cares. Because we actually believe he loves us. It takes humility to pray and pour our hearts out to God, believing that he's loving and able. It takes pride to hold on to it all and keep it in our own hands and try to juggle it and believe that God doesn't care or he's not able to handle this one. That's pride. And what God is calling us to is this active intentionality where we begin to prayerfully fast and cast all of ourselves and our worries onto him. Because he cares for you. Oh, I pray this would be so understood by us that he is the one who actually cares for us and loves us. The very arms that you're casting and tossing all your anxieties into are the same everlasting arms that have been carrying you your whole life. God has carried you with his everlasting arms as a father carries his child. And he whispers his word into your ear by his spirit and reminds you of truth after truth that you may always have hope and believing in him. That he'll never leave you. That he'll never forsake you. That surely he is with you always to the very end of the age. That his grace is sufficient for all things and in every hour. That you shall not be afraid for he's with you. And that you should not despair or be dismayed because he is your God. And that he will strengthen you and help you and uphold you by his righteous right hand. For he says in Isaiah, for thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who does inhabit eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite and humble. Loved ones, when we believe these truths and humble ourselves and trust God that this is true, this is all I've got, this is all I know, but I believe it. I don't have all the details, but I believe what he has shown me. And I humble myself and trust in him. I calm and quiet my soul and I begin to experience something of peace in my heart and the noise is dialed back because I'm in the presence of God. And I begin to experience what David finishes the psalm, Psalm 131 with, this great call to know the joy of this kind of a hope, the joy of hoping in the Lord. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope here, it's almost the same as faith or trust. David, as the king, is calling the nation of Israel to hope, to trust, to put their faith and belief in God at all times, forever. But you and I both know that that didn't happen. Israel didn't always trust in God, just like we don't always trust in God. But there was one who did. There was an Israelite, in fact, the true Israel, Jesus Christ. The very song that David wrote here was actually written for him to perfectly fulfill. Jesus is the only one who perfectly quieted and calmed his soul through faith in his Father. Day by day, night by night, hardship by hardship, suffering through suffering. 
everything, everything God walked him through, the Father walked him through, Jesus just kept trusting him, kept quieting his soul, kept believing in the Lord. Jesus himself says in John 6, this is why I've come. I've come down from heaven not to do my will, not to exalt my heart and pride, but to do the will of him who sent me. And in John 14, Jesus goes on to say, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love him. I believe he loves me and cares for me. And so Jesus kept entrusting his soul to him. And just to make sure that we don't get this wrong idea that this was easy. This was a cakewalk for Jesus. He just kind of stoically obeyed the Father without any pain or emotion or tears. 1 Peter 2 and 4 explains that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him. That's the Father who judges justly. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, that's you and I, their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Hebrews 5, 7 to 9 goes on to say that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, that's the Father, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus constantly labored to quiet his soul in faith in God. This is a messy process. This is not just some clean thing that goes on. This is hard work, takes sweat and tears and prayer. Sometimes you have to actually cry out just to quiet your soul. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just cried out to God? Maybe you're driving or maybe you just roll out of bed onto your knees and you're just crying out to God? This is messy work. And no greater example is seen than in Gethsemane. When Jesus himself is faced with the ultimate battle of his soul and the noise of God's approaching wrath because Jesus was carrying all of our sins. And what happens? It says that Jesus falls on his face and he bows his head and sweats drops of blood and cries out to God in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What surrender. What humility. That Jesus would trust his father to the very end. That he would believe he's good. And that he knows best. He knows what's necessary. And it was necessary that Jesus drink the cup. That was the answer. Jesus didn't get a different kind of alternative. And yet he trusted the Father and drank the cup for you and for me. Again, we see Christ's hope in his Father right at the very end. When in Hebrews 12 it says that we also are to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily clings or clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to endure the cross because his eyes were fixed on his Father. That The Father was the joy that was set before him, seated on the throne, so that Jesus could run the race marked out for him by the Father with perfect faith, having quieted his soul, continuing to entrust his soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And he kept trusting the Lord, keeping his eyes fixed on the Father, his greatest joy. And now Jesus has ascended. He's finished his race. And he is seated at the right hand of God. And now Jesus calls us. He says, look, look to me. Follow my example. Lock your eyes in on me and run the race that I have marked out for you. I know there's going to be a lot of twists and turns. It's a marathon. It's confusing. It's painful. I get it. Keep your eyes locked here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's refining your faith. He's making you more like himself. And when you cross the finish line, He is your reward. You will have him in every way, present with him, not just spiritually, but physically in his presence. Jesus himself says in John 14, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Jesus tells us why we are to believe in him. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. This is the joy of hoping in the Lord. Really quickly here. Here's four things that we can fix our eyes on the Lord. And hope in the Lord about. And we'll close with this. Hope first in his unchanging character. Hope in his unchanging character. Romans 15. This is a beautiful prayer. Memorize this prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. When we believe that God, that we just don't have hope in God, but he is the hope. He is the God of hope. When I believe that's his character, that's his trait, that's his attribute. He is the God of hope. And I believe it. I'm filled with his joy and his peace and abound in hope. Don't we need more hope? We want to hope in his unchanging character. Not only that, we want to hope in his unfailing promises. His unfailing promises. Second Peter reminds us that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. If he's granted these things to us, let's know them. Let's memorize these promises, these promises that we've already talked about, that he's always with us, that he gives us all that we need for every hour. Know these promises because they were written for you and me. And if we just kind of throw them off to the side and say, well, I I can handle this, we discredit these promises. We're actually not saying they're that precious. They are. We need them. They're unfailing. They don't drop or break. You can always lean on them. Trust in God and all that he has said in his unfailing promises. Three, hope in his unfading salvation. We want to hope in his unchanging character, unfailing promises, and unfading salvation. What's that mean? First Peter 
talks about how we have an inheritance, this salvation that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And in this we rejoice. It doesn't matter what I'm going through right now. I know that I am fixed. There's an inheritance waiting for me that can't rot, can't get lost, can't break down, doesn't go missing. It is guarded by God. It is unfading, as sure as the undying, resurrected life of Jesus. So is my inheritance in him. Let that give you hope. Oh, everything around us in this world is dying and decaying and failing. But there is something that is unfading. And it is the gospel, the inheritance that, is, that awaits you as a son and daughter of God himself. Lastly, we need to hope in his unswerving plan. This is where it hurts. We, we just got to trust him when it doesn't make sense. Hebrews 12 says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted, so you won't lose hope in this mark, this race marked out for you. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. You haven't died in saying no to temptation like Jesus did. So we know he was tempted way beyond us. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He's not treating you anything different than the way he treated his own son, Jesus. Because he loved Jesus and he loves you. He's actually proving to you that you are in the family. Only sons and daughters get disciplined so that they'll get refined and matured and grow in the elder son, Jesus. For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but... Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those who keep hoping in the Lord through it. You can stop trusting in God and get bitter. Or you can keep trusting the God who loves you and has adopted you and be trained by it. And grow and mature in it. And this is what we want. Even when our life doesn't make sense, we can't connect all the dots. We know who does connect all the dots. And we can trust in him. We can rest that his plan is unswerving. He's making us like Jesus. He is good. His plan is good. Even though the details are confusing right now, I don't have all the info. But I trust his unswerving plan, his unchanging character, his unfailing promises, and his unfading salvation. Beloved, I pray that we would hope in the Lord from this time forward and forever and be diligent in training our souls to hope in him day after day. Let's pray.